Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. I'm your co-host, Debbie Cox Bolton. and this episode, I speak with Representative Q. Williams, the first African-American elected to the legislature from his hometown of Middletown, Connecticut. We talked about his important work as newly appointed chair of the Legislative Housing Committee to address the housing shortage and affordability crisis in his state, as well as his longstanding work, both as a legislator and an educator, to advance equity issues. We also talked about what's in the curriculum of a class he teaches at the University of Hartford called Leadership, Opportunities and Challenges, including what it means to come out of the cave and into the light. And what may be my new favorite question ever, what Hogwarts house are you? I hope you enjoy it. Hugh Williams, welcome to an honorable profession. Oh, glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's going to be so fun to talk to you. I'm excited. There's so many questions I have for you. And I let's just dive in. I wanted to start with the fact that in January, you were appointed to chair the housing committee in the Connecticut legislature. Huge issue, of course, all over the country. It kind of takes different forms. I mean, affordability is, I think people are surprised that it's not just the coast, it's all over the place, but you are on a coast. So what are some of the main kind of challenges you have in Connecticut with housing? And what are some of the issues that the committee is looking at to fix those? That's a great question. And the thing that I love about being on the housing committee is that it really, and housing in general, is really at the center of a lot of our issues. If you want to have an impact on public health, you have to look at housing. If you want to have an impact on education, you have to look at housing. If you want to look at how to grow our economy and businesses, you have to look at housing. If you don't have a place to live, you you can't get to work. If you want to look at our transportation network and being in a more green environment, you have to look at housing. So it really allows for the ability to touch on a lot of the things that I care about, just growing our economy, making sure that we're all healthy, access to well-paying jobs. And you can do this all by making sure that everyone has a home in an affordable way for their budget so that we can, I think, have the country and community that we're looking to do. So we have been working diligently. And I said, it is this weird balance where I think there's multiple types of communities in Connecticut. So like the Eastern Connecticut area or near the casino and near the sub base versus Fairford County, which is essentially a New York suburb or central Connecticut where I'm from, they have very distinct cultures and very distinct sort of feels and vibes, but they all still share the same problem that there is not enough housing for everyone at every budget, period. If you are a recent graduate and you're looking to get your starter home or just a place to rent, there's very few places that you can go in an affordable way. If you're a senior and you're looking to downsize, there's not enough housing for you all. If you're a growing family and you want to be able to get maybe a second or third bedroom for your next child, it is incredibly expensive, incredibly expensive. And if we truly want to have the growing economy that we are looking to have in Connecticut, when we have so many great um, employers, you can't do that without housing. So we have 
a bill that I am very proud of champion that we got across the finish line last year was to provide rent commissions in all of our municipalities over 25,000. And this actually is a good policy for both our property owners and for our tenants. It is a fair, neutral body that will allow folks to talk about if their increases in rent are unconscionable when there are increases. And that is a very high bar to get to. And also they can navigate and negotiate other things around uh, improvements to the building, if things are safe, all the sort of health and safety issues. All those things can be kind of moderated and mediated through this commission that your local municipal leader, whether it's your first electman or your mayor, can appoint both uh, housing advocates, lawyers, and property owners to come to the table and help mediate between property owners and tenants. And when we get those up and running, and we've seen it both work very well in large towns like uh, Bloomfield and Harford and New Haven. We've also seen it work very well in small towns like Clinton, which is on the shoreline here in Connecticut. When they get up and running, I think it's going to be one of the policies that we're going to be really proud about. I wonder why we haven't done it a long time ago. Yeah, that's so great. And I think there's so many aspects to this, right? You're talking both about the cost, affordability. You're also talking in that answer a lot about availability, just the housing stock and the numbers of units available. I know that for a lot of communities, some of the federal dollars that are coming to them via the American Rescue Plan or other avenues through all this this federal money, people are looking to invest some of that in, in addressing the housing issue. Are you guys looking at using any federal dollars for some of the work that you're doing? Yes. And I have said a thousand times ad nauseum is that we do not have a demand issue in Connecticut. People want to live in Connecticut. So we have a great school system. We have a transportation network that could be a lot better, but it's decent. We are near New York City. We're near Boston. Uh, We have wonderful higher education institutions. We also have a lot of unique assets and things to do and have fun and do it in an affordable way in Connecticut. So people want to live here. So the demand is fine. The only way we are going to to be the students of economics 101 that we are, the only way to fix this problem, if we don't have a demand problem, is to fix a supply problem. And we have to build our housing stock, period. There's no other way to solve this problem. And what does that look like? I think we're going to need to do transit-oriented development to place people in reasonably dense spaces which is also a way to help with our climate change and making sure that we're doing things in an environmentally friendly um, factor. That's also where a lot of people want to live, whether it's younger or older people that don't want to be over-reliant on cars. That is the way to do it. We're going to need to do multi-family housing. We're going to need to find opportunities for people to rent and to own. And what can that look like? I think we're looking at low-cost loans. We're looking at figuring out ways to eliminate PMI and working with our private banks to be able to do this in a way that's, I said, both affordable and safe without putting our overall economy at risk again. But at the end of the day, when folks do have well-paying and well-compensated jobs, the number one thing that they're going to pay for first is always their home. So that things like PMI do not protect our residents. They don't protect our community. They only protect banks and they protect banks in a way that is unnecessary when you are fully vetting those loans from the very beginning. So that is a dredge on our over economy. And those are dollars that could be put right back in our economy or put back into developing additional housing or many of the other things that we want to buy. But right now it has become, it's just one more barrier to home ownership, which isn't fair and isn't right. And it's one of the ways that we've led to 
disparities in who can own homes and who can't. Yeah. Yeah. I want to move on to a different topic, but I do just want to say, cause I've heard you say it too, you know, the housing issue was, as it was an issue before the pandemic, but it just, you know, like so many issues, it just feels like it's been so exasperated. Right. I mean, it, you know, that whether it was people not being able to work and then, you know, losing their, not having the money to, to afford or whether it's, it's just so many, you know, and, and it's disproportionately, frankly, affecting communities of color and others. So, I mean, I assume that's kind of what you're seeing in Connecticut as well. It's even a bigger problem than it was three years ago. It was already a big problem. And I'll, and I'll say it and here's why it's so both person, like where the person was political for me. And right during when I got named um, housing chair, I was a member of a mentoring program about a decade ago before I was an educator. And one of my friends who was also in this mentoring program said that his mentee wasn't doing well and we had to go and help. So I called to like read in the riot act and he immediately said, well, keep myself outside. I have nowhere to go. And even with all the research that we had, we had his mentor who was, I had to call him the perennial rich guy that's on all your local nonprofit boards myself as a state representative and a local city director, the three of us, it took us three days to get him into just a shelter. And it wasn't even a shelter that could support him for the numerous needs that he needed with mental health, with getting a job and all the other things. And it ended up not working out. He ends up getting kicked out and his mother tried to go back and help him. And there's no other way to say it. He ends up, he ends up killing his mother. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And to this day, I still feel tremendous amounts of responsibility that if we could have gotten him into supportive housing from the very beginning, I truly believe that his mother would still be here today. And that sort of loss, I feel like our community as a whole has a responsibility for and that we need to make sure that we have the right housing for everyone in order to prevent that sort of loss. And so I think there's both a human and moral reason that we need to do this along with an economic reason. Yeah, I'm so sorry that that happened to you and to your community and to your friends. And it just underscores what you started talking about at the beginning of the answer was, you know, just how all inter- the intersectionality, right, of all of these issues. It's not just housing, it's mental health. It's, you know, that has economic, mm-hmm. it's, it's all tied together. And we have to think about these things, not in silos, I think, but in kind of a comprehensive way, if we're going to really address some of these root problems. But I'm terribly sorry that that happened to you. I know, I appreciate that. And I said, I'm saddened for his family. I'm saddened for the loss for our community. But I said, it, it has inspired me even more to make sure that we are fully investing into our supportive housing, to getting more affordable housing options, into mental health and healthcare, because all these things are related. And I will say, the reason that I feel like this whole situation even started was when he got injured when he was, or sophomore in high school and couldn't play football anymore. And his home was 1.1 miles away from the school. So that means he wasn't entitled to busing. And then when he couldn't get to school because his leg was broken and the weather was bad because we're living in Connecticut with snow, he became truant. And then since he lost his credits, he didn't want to participate anymore. And I really think all those sort of things went downhill. So once again, if we, if we look at where people live and their connection to space, whether it's to their schools or where they want to work or to social services and everything else that we need in order to have vibrant communities, it all starts with the home. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And maybe that dovetails into a question I wanted to ask you about more broadly or touching on here is about equity issues. I know this is something that you have been talking about for a long time. You founded a nonprofit called Equity Connecticut that was focusing kind of on dismantling systemic racism through action and civic engagement. How does that manifest? So how does your interest and your 
commitment to solving some of these inequities manifest itself as a legislator? Like, what, how do you see the opportunities to address some of these longstanding inequities from a policymaking perspective? So this was another great question. As policymakers, if we use a racial lens, and I would also say if we also oftentimes we use a gendered lens and the intersectionality between those two, if we help those that often need the most amount of help and support because of historical oppression and because of the historical inequities, if we use a racial lens and a gender lens, we will oftentimes have the greatest impact to help the most amount of people in the best way. And then that sort of like rising tides will rise all ships. That is the best way to do so. And I think about my mom who worked for the state of Connecticut for 30 plus years in the mental health workers space. And as a black woman who was a single mother who did so much for me, I said, I would not be the leader and man that I am today without her, which is actually why I recently just changed my last name in February, I changed my name and took her last name, which has been a, an honor and a privilege. When I think about how much less she made compared to her colleagues that were white men in the same role and what impact that had on our family and like where we got to live. And even the neighborhood that I grew up in, which I'm really, really proud to live in, I like to joke that I grew up rich because I grew up with the poor white people, not the poor black people. And the only reason that we were able to get into that neighborhood was because at the time, if you were Black, you had to have someone recommend you. And if you didn't get recommended, you couldn't live there. But living in that neighborhood, as I said, living and going to school was in one of the white schools, I was able to get into the gifted and talented program. And from there, was able to get into like advanced classes and so on and so forth. So, I mean, just those sort of what I like to call strategic luck and strategic like lucky assets vastly changed how I was able to get many opportunities in going to college and getting into music and being an official and so on and so forth. It really all started with my mom being able to kind of circumvent a lot of the inequities that we would have been expected to have to navigate and go through. And I realized that if we can, A, take those inequities out of policy, right? and then go back and empower folks that have been hurt by those sort of policies for years, we can make our community the community that we've always aspired to be, like onto that path of um, building a, a more perfect union. Yeah, absolutely. And are there, you taught, I mean, that was in, even in your answer there, you kind of centered that around your home, right? Your house, your home, where your neighborhood that you lived in, the opportunities that afforded you. So obviously housing goes back to the housing conversation, but are there other policies that you're looking at in the legislature now or something that you passed or that you think needs to be passed that other kind of examples of kind of where you think you can make some investments that would really, you know, help give people that kind of, the kind of opportunity that they, that they need to get ahead? Yeah. So there's, I'm also on the finance committee because I, it's actually kind of funny. I, I joined the finance committee because I joked that when I first got there, there was no money to give out. So we better get more about what money's coming in and where that's coming from. Yeah. Uh, then COVID but happened. It was a little difference. tough for a little while. <laughs> yeah. But then Connecticut had a windfall of money. We've been, there was a ton of things that we can invest in. But I think that illustrated the overall point where that we have underfunded numerous strategic assets in empowering families and empowering our workers, um, empowering our residents to do the things that they've always said they wanted to do and need to do in order to make our economy and our nation and our state strong. So right now, I really want us to have a comprehensive look about how we do taxation and where that money comes from. So A, we can be more consistent. Two, those that have the ability to pay and not have it hurt as much. In some ways, they may not even notice it. They may notice it in the sort of like ones and zeros in their like long bank statement, 
but they won't notice the way that I know a lot of the members of my community that I grew up in back in Woodbury Circle, where they would notice if their lights were off, right? Or they notice if their, their phone wasn't on, or they would notice if they had to pay a fee because the rent check was late. They would notice if they got that eviction letter. Those things you can really feel in a very different way that hurts significantly different than when you are doing well and you like literally can't figure out other things to spend money on. But we do need to make sure that people can like be well fed and have healthy food on their table. So then you don't also have the impacts of personal health with diabetes and high blood pressure and all the other and obesity that all comes with having terrible access to food or you can't afford food, right? If you don't have electricity and I want you to go home and study, and I want your, your kid to do well and do their homework. But if you don't have electricity, you can't see the books to read. I can't expect you to do work and then come back and be a, a good student, a good scholar. That's not fair. It's just not logical. So I really do think, and I'm glad that we passed one of the, the I think one of the, the highest additional EITCs of earning income tax credits in this last budget that is going to put money right back in families' hands, which I'm really, really proud of. But I do think we can have some other creative solutions, particularly around capital gains. I think we can look at the one that I would like to get rid of that I think would be a bipartisan effort too, is get eliminating sales tax. It's one of the most progressive taxes that we have. And we are taxed, even though we don't tax food, we still tax clothing and a lot of other like necessary items. And that is going to hurt those that need to look at every single penny in order to balance their budget. Yeah. You know what you're reminding that's, I know you were a city treasurer, we'll get there in a minute, but you know, before you were a legislator, but I was talking to Jose Cisneros, the city treasurer of San Francisco on this podcast recently. And he talked a lot about, not about the tax structure, but about also the fees and other things that the city or in some cases the state levy and whether or not that that's a fair structure and whether or not, you know, you want to, of course, you need to hold people accountable, but you know, what is a hundred dollar fine for one person is not, you know, does not have the same impact. It's all relative to your point. And so anyway, I think that's another interesting thing I'm seeing around the country, people looking at kind of the fees and other kind of penalties or whatever tickets, you know, there's just the cost of those types of things that could be, you know, that could really set someone to your, you know, what you were talking about on the spiral, right? If they, can't get their car out of the impound and they can't get to work and, you know, all of those things down the line, you know, is that really what we meant to do because somebody got a parking ticket, right? You know, and just looking at all of that. So anyway, I think that's a really interesting thing you guys are looking at in Connecticut there. Yes. And those fees can be a burden and a barrier that is unbearable. My mother-in-law called me who is still kind of shocked that she has a son-in-law that's a politician uh, per se, but she was saying that her best worker, her best worker. She's an HR manager for a manufacturing company in greater Kansas City. And he, uh, the, the judge told him to get a lawyer because he owed fines for driving without a license. And because he did it so many times, they were about to put him in jail. And the reason that he didn't pay it was because he couldn't get to work back and forth because he couldn't drive because he didn't have his license. So this endless cycle where all he was trying to do was help provide for him and his grandmother and they were going to throw this boy in jail for driving without a license. And he's like, I see, like, I swear, the only place that I'm going to is to work and back. And equity doesn't even describe that. I would describe that as immoral, illogical, unfair, unsustainable, and just not right. Not yeah. right. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's so important that we're having these conversations and looking across these inequities that exist in these systems and how to change them in a way that makes sense. So I want to ask, go in a different direction for a minute. I saw something on your website that I didn't know about you that I think is super interesting, which is, and kind of goes to the conversations we're having about your work in the legislature, but it's about leadership generally. As I understand it, you are teaching a class at the University of Hartford on leadership opportunities and challenges. And I think that, you know, all the things we're talking talking about right now is really comes down to people being willing to step up and lead on some really tough issues and have hard conversations and find creative solutions. And so I'm just curious about that class and how that came about and and what you're teaching kids at the university there. So there's several things about this. So I said, I'm I'm an early education administrator. So I, I like to consider myself an educator, but whenever I use the word educator, people are like, well, do you teach? So I always felt kind of like a uh, imposter in terms of being an, a teacher. But this gave me the opportunity to be like, no, I really am a teacher. I'm a professor. <laughs> right? So that's the first thing. I think the second part was I did not have many teachers nor professors of color or particularly Black men in my entire education. So I felt a, a calling to not only just be a teacher, but ex- like be explicitly a Black teacher that was going to be there so that they could have interactions with Black men in a leadership role. I thought that was a really important role to feel and fit to feel that I did not have, or did not have a lot of access to when I was uh, growing up and all the way up into my master's. I think the other thing that I really enjoyed about this class was that it really was 15 weeks of things that Q Williams liked, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which was awesome. I, and I couldn't believe I had that much flexibility to design a course, but it's an intersectional course. So it's finance, it's history, it's political science, it's public administration, it's psychology, it's history, but it's a lot of first sources, which I'm really, really proud of. And having the students really engage with both the philosophy of leadership and the practical application of leadership. And I try to get the students to really understand about like asking questions and then recognizing that leadership has consequences. So my favorite, so I, there's a lot of favorites that I have in the class. I, I will say like, I get to do some geeky stuff. Like we do a personality test around the sorting hat from Harry Potter, oh, uh, which, fun. Is like my, which is one of my favorite classes. There's a proud, proud Hufflepuff. Primary. I was going to say, I was going to have to ask you what you are. You're a Hufflepuff. Okay. I'm a Hufflepuff primary and Slytherin secondary. All my family are all Slytherins to their chagrin. They can't stand out alone. But like, you're always too nice. Stop talking to people all the time. It's just us. But anyways. But the first week we go through the cave, Plato's the cave, and he does the and it's Socrates talking to a student to Glossolan about bringing the light to this cave and like leaving the cave and leaving the change and being liberated and coming back to the cave when you bring the light and what the consequences are. And he, they even say that they try to kill this man for bringing back the light. And I then bring that parallel and say, well, let's think about some of the leaders that we know very well. JFK, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Jesus of Nazareth, Mahatma Gandhi, the list goes on and on. Oh, in fact, even Socrates himself, right? They all killed, all of them were either killed by the state or killed by someone in their community for trying to bring liberation, to try to bring understanding, to try to bring new knowledge and challenge communities to be better and to live up to their own value. So the price of being a leader is incredibly costly up to and including death. So if you say you want to be a leader, I want you to think from the very beginning, what are you willing to die for? Classic best five. See you next week. (laughs) I've I've taught it the same way for all five times because 
it becomes very clear, I think almost in any leadership role, whether you're a manager at a store or you're a parent to your child or a bigger sibling to a little sibling, or even as a, a legislator or policymaker or elected official, there are opportunities to lead in so many different spaces. But when you get it right, once again, there's a lot of potential positive consequences. But if you get it wrong, or if people feel like you are wrong, the consequences can also be dire. But even if you are right, and I think we can see in this sort of how like divisive our country is right now, where something as simple as saying the election was fair and the things that weren't fair, like the disenfranchisement of people that have been to jail or the gerrymandering, those are real ways in which the elections or many elections have been stolen. But the overall presidential election was not stolen at all. And the fact that that is not something that is considered fact, but that is something that's considered a light that could be brought to a cave that folks would want to kill you for. It just makes this allegory of this cave like so prominent for how important it is to really be a leader and be willing to stand by your convictions and by your morals and by what you know to be right and true. Yeah, first of all, I know that I'm familiar with that text, Socrates in the Cave, and is so powerful. Thanks for reminding me of it, because I'm going to go back and read it again. And I want to take your class, by the way. But I mean, it's so interesting. I'm so excited about that, because it's like, you know, right now, to your point of this world we live in, it's like, we have to have people feeling comfortable to use their voice and to be step up and be leaders, right? This is a really brought time in our history. It's also an exciting time where I feel like change is possible. You know, the conversations we're having are important. The conversations we're having, there's some resources behind some of this now. I mean, their change is, you know, change is possible. And so, you know, I do you feel like the kids leave that class kind of, you know, first of all, they're I don't know what they how they react to like, you know, leadership is death, you know. <laughs> but you know, maybe they're like, never mind, I don't want to be a leader. But I mean I'm joking, but like do you, you know, I hope they leave that class feeling like feeling empowered and feeling like it's important that my voice is heard. And is that the goal? The goal is because I think in that sort of gravity is where folks can rise to the occasion. And I learned that as an educator for early elementary, where we, in our pre-K program, we start our kids to learn how to read. And many of our kids are reading by, pre-K four, are reading by Christmas break, by promotion to kindergarten. Almost all of our kids, if not, like like maybe one in the class may not be reading, but most of them are reading. And it's this idea that if you give kids a challenge or if you give people a challenge, most of the time, if you give them the tools and the foundations to be supported, they can do well and they will rise to the occasion. So you want to explain to folks that this is going to be tough. This is going to be hard. Here's the path forward. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what the mission is. And I'm going to support you to get there. And the same thing. So if I give you, if I tell you that the consequences are potentially death, right? I'm going to make sure that I give you enough tools so we don't get you killed, (laughs) right? But more importantly, that you are prepared for that level of responsibility and accountability and that you are going to do so in a way that you feel driven, that you feel excited and that folks are going to want to follow you and folks are going to want to come with you. And you are going to be right there with them in the mission which allows for like democratization of power and where everyone can thrive and everyone can do well. And I think most of the students get like, my reviews have been so usually like very similar to my own personality where either you love me or you hate me and yeah. that's kind of what happens. <laughs> and I, you know, it's not like anyone's ever said like, you know what, you are pretty shy. You should be a little less theatrical. And I think my other favorite part to teach is the Declaration of Independence because I think that's where students... I can help put the sort of like rubber to the road about 
our beliefs as a nation. I mean, we call that that section American radicalism and how radical it is in this idea that not only do you have a right to revolt if the government is not providing for you and the things that you're, you are entitled to and your God-given rights of life, liberty, and property or life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Not only do you have a right to revolt, you have a God-given responsibility and a duty. Like you don't have a choice. Like the, the text is very clear. You don't have a choice, like you must. And so when we go through the other sections about black liberation theory and feminism and womenism, and we look through those lenses about these folks like that are demanding their basic rights. And I say, well, if we believe that Thomas Jefferson is right, then the ballot and the bullet makes a lot of sense, right? When we look at the case about, essentially like but sex of course cases about intersectionality and how these workers were being discriminated against because they were black and women, once again, like what is their rights and responsibilities? And it was gonna, if we are to believe Thomas Jefferson, then we have to be ready to understand things like the Black Lives Matter movement. And we have to be able to understand why after the decimation of Roe v. Wade with decades of precedent, why people should be mad and should be upset and why we have a responsibility and duty to do something about it. And hopefully it doesn't get to revolt, which is why I think we have to have these like really strong, passionate conversations so that we can meet people in a place of discord, but a place of civility and moving forward in a way that we can all get what we are entitled to by our God-given rights. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about your own journey, because you mentioned that there about kind of the path and the, you know, the stepping into the light of leadership. So did you yourself think before you started teaching this, you know, this class, you ended up in politics and in elected office. Is that something that when you were growing up, you thought you wanted to aspire to, or how did that come about for you? So my family as a whole have always served in the church. So my mom's a missionary, grandma and grandpa were deacon and deaconesses. And if I counted all my aunts and uncles that were deacon and deaconesses, we'd be here all the time. And I think many of my family members thought I was going to go into the church too. But I asked the Lord to get, I said, you have to give me another blessing, another calling, because that's not for me. Let me figure out something outside the four walls. But even at the early, most earliest of ages, I've always cared about like what the rules were, how were they developed. So one of my favorite examples to give is that in fourth grade, I created a video game club with some of my neighborhood buddies and they started playing video games. And I started like writing the structure for like, who's going to be the, how do you like the president? How do you get a vice president? Who's going to collect the treasury funds and what are the dues going to be? And like all the rules. And then the next day, when, after we had like voted in the rules that, that evening, the next day, they all started their own video game club because they said, I cared about rules. And they just want to play a video game. <laughs> and I think it was just so indicative of just like how my mind was always a little different, like built a little different. And I think so by sixth grade, I was in student government and was in student government all the way up until college. I was the first black student government president at Bryant University, which I'm so really proud of today. So I think serving through electoral politics has been something that I've always been passionate about. But it was also very clear that when you had numbers and a mandate to be able to bring to authority to say, hey, this isn't right or this could be better. And we collectively are saying this. There was oftentimes the ability to get changed versus saying, hey, I think this myself. And I think I've taken that sort of method of like organizing and like we, the collective are saying, I think we also, as I'll just say my class, a very Hufflepuff mind, like we are all going to do this together has been, I think, just the way that I, why, like the reason that I'm an educator, the, the way that I go about teaching and why I'm a parent advocate and how we are all going to learn this and we're all going to go to the Capitol together and share like why our school is so important and why we're doing so well. And so I said, why I'm a policymaker. And one of the first things I did was like 
get into a bunch of caucuses, the, the Progressive Caucus and the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus and the Art Caucus. And actually, I'm, a, I'm actually a member of the Polish Caucus, too, because the neighborhood I grew up in, Stiva Babcha, and I speak more Polish than a lot of the other Polish Americans in the caucus. So they're like, wow. hey, come on in, Q. You're, you're in media city. If you have a Babcha and can say, like, hi, and how are you better than we can without an accent, or then you're right with us, too. But because I, I think there's a, I said, there's a lot of power in the collective, and there's a lot of power in the plural. I mean, by definition, democracy, that demos, like, the more than one. That's where the real strength comes in, and then and I, actually, I just really just love people in general, and love talking and hearing and developing these sort of relationships, and it's why I love the job so much. And I've always said, if the moment I don't love the job, I'll leave. I'll leave. If you don't have passion and joy that these that your community that has invested in me so much and that has empowered me to be our voice for all of us. That sort of gravity and that responsibility does not bring me joy and happiness and thrill. Then I've already lost it, and I might as well get let somebody else do it. I don't think you've lost it. It is an honor and a privilege and a joy, literally every day to serve. And I always say that if I wasn't like I suddenly lost an election, how sad would I, be? I would be really sad. But I know I can still go and do this work another way. I would be right back at the Capitol as a lobbyist and as a parent advocate and working on those issues again, even without the title. And as much as I love the lapel pins that you get a collection of once you're an elected official, I can take it off immediately and be right there with my parents again, fighting for I said healthcare, fighting to make sure that everyone has a opportunity for high quality education. I would do it in a second. Yeah. Well, I can't tell you how much we appreciate your energy and your passion. And to me, this is what, you know, this is why we do this podcast, frankly, is for people to recognize, you know, an honorable profession, politics, government is an honorable profession. And you so exemplified like what it is that people, you know, want from their leaders, I think, which is that passion and that dedication and that commitment to making their lives better. So thank you for everything you do day to day in Connecticut. Thanks for being part of New Deal. And thank you for being on the show today. No, thank you for having, it's been an honor to be part of New Deal. It's something I brag about all the time. And having that ability to fight for what I would consider the basic rights of Americans and being able to do that in a pragmatic way, in a practical way, and doing it so that we can all do this together, I think New Deal has been able to exemplify that sort of philosophy and framework better than anybody else. So I just said it's an honor to, to be part of y'all, and I really appreciate the time and the platform. I appreciate y'all sharing this with me. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Q. And all right now. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Mm-hmm.